Welcome back to Awakened Exchanges. I'm your host, Jay Rich, and we've got our first Thanksgiving episode for you today. This whole month, I plan to focus on people who care for others, people that can show us how to be grateful all year round. Sadly, it's another rushed week as I'm recording this intro late on Tuesday, so I apologize if it feels a little rushed. We do have an extra special Thanksgiving Day episode planned, as well as a Christmas episode that I seriously cannot wait for. I'm going to keep being a little hush-hush about both of them for now, but keep tuning in as I hope to tease more information as we get closer to recording. I'm recording this on election night, so I suppose I can stop telling people to get out and vote. That said, I don't think we're going to have an answer about who our next president is until after this episode airs, and maybe not until a whole while after. I hope that they prove me wrong, but since the White House has just installed non-scalable fencing, it's starting to make me worry that Trump's new wall is just to protect him from the masses in case he decides to try to steal the election somehow. Or perhaps he'll just keep the mail-in ballots from being counted via lawsuits. I could be totally wrong, but I am still worried about all of it. That said, my hope is that after this election is finally over... Maybe we can start thinking about the fact that we're all Americans and it's time to do our best to salvage what's left of this American dream. Our Constitution was an inspired document, but it wasn't meant to last forever. The Founders knew that times changed and it was meant to be updated. The last amendment was in 1992 and it just affected congressional salary changes. Really? Before that, it was 1971, nearly 50 years ago, and that was just in order to allow 18-year-olds the right to vote so that we could keep drafting them to fight in the Vietnam War. Is this the legacy our founding fathers would want? I personally don't believe so. As Thomas Jefferson himself said, I am not an advocate for frequent changes in laws and constitutions, but laws and institutions must go hand in hand with the progress of the human mind. As that becomes more developed, more enlightened, and as new discoveries are made, new truths discovered, and manners and opinions change with the change of circumstances, institutions must advance also to keep pace with the times. We might as well require a man to wear still the coat which fitted him when a boy as civilized society to remain ever under the regimen of their barbarous ancestors. Has our society seriously not progressed since 1971? Have there been no new discoveries or progress that's worth noting in our Constitution? No rights that need updated? Jefferson once said that every Constitution, then, and every law naturally expires at the end of 19 years. If it be enforced longer, it is an act of force and not of right. That's right. He said 19 years! Maybe it's time we rework the entire document and build into it the equality that we wish actually existed in today's society. That's probably enough of that rant for today, but before we get quickly into the sponsors, I want to thank David Benedictus for joining me for our first remote interview. David is the co-founder of Cannabis Patients Pacific Northwest, as well as a retired mental health professional. Before COVID, he was teaching a class at Clark College called Cannabis and Your Health, which is where we first crossed paths again in my adulthood. As well as talking about that class, we talk a lot about mental health, criminal justice reform, and the decline of our natural endocannabinoid system. He is a very knowledgeable individual with a fascinating story to tell. I'm glad to be introducing him to a lot of you, and I hope you'll find the information as fascinating and helpful as I did. Now, here's a brief rundown of our sponsors. First and foremost, I want to thank all of you personally for your support. 
Just listening and sharing this podcast with your friends gives me a reason to keep striving to provide the best content that I can. If you have the means and would like to contribute personally, please don't forget about our Patreon page, where you will get access to exclusive content and deals just for our dedicated fans. As for the other sponsors, Awaken Vapes was the first of the Awaken brands and has been helping you modulate your high with CBD-only high-terpene vape products since 2019. Genesis Farms has been making the highest quality medicinal RSO among many other amazing products, starting with the medical community back before 2010. And last but not least, the Caramel Corn Company, bringing you caramel corn the way it was meant to be. And remember, if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Also, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I know that every podcast says that, but that's because it really does help spread the word and visibility. You can also support us on Patreon or connect with us on the social media of your choice. We are at Awakened Exchanges on Facebook and Instagram and at Awaken Exchanges on Twitter. All right now, stay tuned and thank you for listening to Awakened Exchanges. Genesis Farms was founded on the belief in cannabis' ability to heal. Genesis Farms is more than a brand. They're a compassionate community of like-minded folks that generate top-quality cannabis products made with love and care. Community outreach is always on their mind, and their partnerships with Grow for Vets and Parents for Pot was just a beginning to what they hope to accomplish in the coming years. You can find their products on the best dispensary shelves across the state of Oregon, their RSO is the most consistent quality in the state, their tinctures are second to none, and their personal massage oil will have you and your partner both coming back for more. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and ask for them in your local dispensary today. Don't forget to listen to Sean's interview right here on Awakened Exchanges soon. Our new sponsor is the Caramel Corn Company. Caramel Corn the way it was meant to be. Made from premium ingredients in small, handcrafted batches, and completely gluten-free. The flavors include original, roasted cashew, salted almond, mixed nut, white morsel macadamia, spicy sriracha, peanut butter, butterscotch, and my personal favorites, raspberry caramel apple and chocolate drizzle. I can't say enough how delicious this caramel corn is. I wouldn't buy it from any other source. You can find Caramel Corn Company products for sale at Portland Area Market of Choice locations, and when it gets stocked back up, maybe it'll be online again. Visit www.caramelcorncompany.com and get more information today. Remember, buying local supports small businesses and keeps your money building your community. Last but not least... Awaken Vapes has been bringing you some of the highest quality CBD vape pens since ringing in the new year of 2019. I became passionate about cannabis after a car wreck left me with major migraines and um, no modern medical pills helped alleviate the symptoms. After having tried cannabis a handful of times in high school and college, it was actually a doctor's recommendation that led me to give it another try. Only then did I realize that we'd all been at least a little misled about the health benefits of this amazing plant. And uh, despite an unexpected break because of the vape ban and then a global health crisis, the business is stronger than ever, and we invite you to check out our updated website today. 
We are still offering our three varieties with new and improved terpene formulations for enhanced flavor to go along with that custom blended terpene effect. Check back at www.awakenvapes.com and be the first online orders of our high-demand Delta 8 cartridges coming in stock here soon. Use the coupon code PODCAST20 at checkout all this month for 20% off your entire order. That's PODCAST20 for 20% off. Welcome to Awakened Exchanges. Thank you for joining us today, David. Uh, for those of our audience who are unfamiliar with you, uh, could you tell us your name and a little bit about what you do? My name is David Benedictus. I'm a retired mental health nurse, and I retired in 2010 when I was 60. And I've been um, so I did a lot of things before that um, in nursing and. Uh, multidisciplinary um, system integration projects with integrating mental health with uh, other healthcare systems and primary care and chemical dependency and uh, involved with developing best practice standards and such. And then uh, in the last eight years of my uh, working uh, career, I uh, was hired as the victim impact coordinator for the Clark County Juvenile Court. Interesting. And I, yeah, that was that was an interesting. Uh, so I got that position after I left um, uh, United Behavioral Health as a care manager for um, Clark County Integrated Healthcare Initiative or Mental Health Initiative, and that company the company hired me along with a number of other mental health professionals to help the local uh, county set up um, a, uh, integrate, a more integrated mental health services for the Medicaid uh, population, those people that were Medicaid mm-hmm. eligible, they had it, they had that um, low-income status. And um, so that was, that was a fascinating project. Uh, uh, I think it was four years I worked for them. And um, and then uh, as part of that, I, I started doing volunteer mediation just in community mediation, mediation services over the phone, neighborhood stuff, and um, getting people together to resolve neighborhood conflicts. Definitely needed, and, especially with how things go sometimes. Uh, oh, oh yeah, yeah. Right I mean, now, so. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, uh, neighborhood conflicts, uh, they, they, they take a lot of energy of uh, city, city and county personnel, people calling in complaining about vegetations or cars parked or noise or uh, crime issues. And, and then this uh, neighborhood um, me- mediation process uh, where they train volunteer mediators to answer phones and then to uh, call and try to get some clarification over the phone between neighbors or um, in cases where it would be helpful to meet face-to-face and work things out, uh, it really saved uh, the, um, the county and city uh, workers a lot of time um, 
because people, you know, would call and go, why can't you fix this problem? But then people could sit down and resolve it themselves. Well, and that's um, one of the things that I feel we should be adding more funding to in the whole race to defund the police and all. We have to build up those other services that would take some of those places. And that sounds like a very interesting uh, way to do that. Well, yeah. And, uh, in fact, that's what happened. There was, uh, we found that there was less calls in the city, less, less county sheriff, city police, county sheriff, planning commission, the, the, the complaint to the city council, the county councils, all those things went down when you had pro- uh, problem solving up front and offered pe- people an alternative. Um, and so that was, I was really just in the right place at the right time and, and, uh, and was able to move over from that uh, from that volunteer position when I was still working full time um, for the county mental health project underneath the uh, con- uh, as my employer for United Behavioral Health. So we were looking at United Behavioral Health working with the county to develop best practice for mental health. Uh, services for children, adults, and seniors, and trying to create an integrated healthcare system. You probably heard the, uh, the term silos of care. So everybody gets their care in mental health or chemical dependency or primary care or specialty, but there's not a lot of communication between those of those uh, silos and okay. therefore a lot of things get dropped. So, so that, that's, uh, that was a, a big thing in the in, in the nineties and two thousands, and th- there was great progress in that until the Great Recession and mm. wiped out all that all the funding. But um, in two thousand one, I think it was that I went, uh, I got hired um, into the Victim Impact Program uh, at the Clark County Juvenile Court, based on my background in mental health and ability to have. Uh, and then the, the cross training with mediation, so I had the skill sets of he- helping people having difficult conversations. Yeah. Um, and the Clark County Juvenile Court, I, mean, I was so lucky to get that position because they were just starting out creating a restorative justice program for juveniles in Clark County, which means that they they looked at crime, juvenile crime, and all crime as harms to people rather than harms to the state or um, um, that just um, expanded the they expanded the idea of community stakeholders and that there was the victim, there was the community, and there was also the need through a restorative lens how to reintegrate young people. Um, into the community and get them services they need to be successful. So that was a major system integration project that I was lucky to be part of for eight years. And it's so important with those, uh, the younger people, uh, they get stuck into the system and some never find their way out. So those early interventions definitely help. Oh, it's, it's huge. You've probably heard the term uh, a school-to-prison pipeline. You know, mm-hmm. It's... They fail in school and they drop out, or they they have to go to alternative schools and they never uh, make the connection uh, with community and and get um, are able to have a sense of future and, and hope and um, possibility. 
and then they they continue acting out and get into um, more difficulty or into the adult criminal um, justice system, and then uh, they have less options. So what we what Clark County did was adopt a na- uh, an international model and one that nationally was becoming very very um, um, interesting to juvenile courts because. But right at that time, there was there was all the studies that were coming out about the importance of that that uh, children are not little adults, rather they have a whole different uh, uh, brain developmental needs and system, and a different way and different needs of looking at accountability that focuses on uh, empathy building, relationships, uh, looking at skills of building skill sets and uh, mastery and relationships in the community and this court did that through rethinking what community service was and they um and this was something they that was borrowed from programs um in canada and other places throughout the united states uh, that actually came out of um the mennonite community really? um the restorative justice, right, about healing the relationships that, that were fractured by uh, crime and by harm. I hadn't heard so that. it wasn't about, yeah, it's uh, it's it, it's a phenomenal program, very successful. Um, and again, the MacArthur Fund, uh, well, I'll, I'm jumping ahead, but um, I'll, I'll just go back to the MacArthur Foundation uh, grants that came through uh, into Washington and, and to other states throughout the the nation to support support those um, demonstration projects and then to uh, integrate them into a best practice. But in Clark County, uh, around around 2000, uh, there was an uh, initiative by the uh, juvenile court administrators and the uh, judges at that time to rethink how they use detention and to bring in services to the court rather than refer out. And they started really, really uh, with small, a small little project, which was making community service connect kids to the community rather than just having them out on the side of the road collecting litter, which is, it can be a, a restorative experience. If you partner people with community mentors and volunteers and then uh, evaluate the kids um, the, for uh, their ability to participate in whatever um, setting their, uh, the, the volunteer activities would be happening. So think about you know uh, the cleanup days, and yeah. so you pair those kids with par- partners. And so by the end of the by after a couple of years, you, the probation counselors would take the kids after they get so many hours of community service assigned to them, down on a wall, and they would have a choice of all these different community projects that are going on. The fishing derby here in uh, in Vancouver every year, the the Mm. Kiwanis Club, I think it is, has a fishing derby where they, 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 for underprivileged and disabled kids, they have a a big, big project that the uh, the local um, nonprofits uh, and service organizations sponsor and we partnered with them, and then the, uh, the juvenile court kids would go and set up, um, set up all the fishing gear, and be part of that process, giving back to the community to help other kids. And That's... then they would be connected to that process through 
mentors in the community and often establish long-term relationships. And that's so beneficial, the long-term relationships and the giving back and seeing what you're doing, helping others, you know? Oh yeah. That, that was, that was giving. So, so giving back. So if, for example, a cleanup day, well, you might be out on the side of the road, but you're out on the side of the road with other community volunteers who are making the community better and cleaning up places where you go to a wetland and you clean up a trash or, or uh, pull stuff out of drains or, or whatever. Um, the, the, it was, it was amazing. And then we start the brilliance of this was, um, this was, uh, the, the brainchild of uh, Ernie Beachwright, the court administrator of juvenile court, and uh, then he hired uh, in a fellow who came from uh, Canada and was part of that Mennonite um, uh, community up there. But he was he was working in a small restorative justice program up uh, above the, in a community up above Vancouver, uh, BC. I can't remember the name of it right now. Um, Farger, I think it was, or something like that. Hmm. But they hired him, so they hired him in there to run that program. They brought someone in from outside, and they then slowly built a, uh, a leadership and management, and then uh, and then changed the whole culture of the court just through that just that one little seed program. And what what then they realized. For, uh, was that some kids needed more preparation before going out in the community. So they then uh, put them in um, a, uh, a short uh, workshop program about communication skills and build up their, their skill sets and stuff like that and how to manage um, anger and things like that. So um, we we had um, pro- we had projects all over the county, a trail any anybody that was looking for um we and then they dedicated one person who used to go out and just supervise kids doing cleanups and stuff like that and they made his job going out and building relationships with local community volunteer organizations who needed people to help so nice. habitat for humanity building a house so they would learn the skills on at the same time um uh, neighborhood cleanups, uh, building fences, whatever, uh, park cleanups, um, planting trees, um, and the and then the then we added a little piece to it, which was looking for mentors, volunteer mentors in local um, college programs, Clark College and WSU programming, okay. and even across the river in PSU, and those those. Uh, young people that were in uh, psychology or human services tracks or criminal justice tracks, we would interview them and bring them in and give them mentor training and then have them go out and mentor kids. So they would then have the extent that that would be another connection to the community and also uh, begin to, uh, this is part of the, the, the uh, fascinating piece of um changing systems was that then they began to influence the training programs in the colleges. And then these kids came out and they had a a feeling for restorative justice and those were the people that the court began hiring. Making lasting changes in the actual community. 
Right. And in the system itself, in the bureaucracy yeah. itself, in the administration. So that, so that it were, there was, <clears throat> we had to change the culture of the court, which is where these kids are criminal, they need to do time in detention, and that's the only way you're going to learn that, that kind of law and order thing that we're hearing a lot about. And now, um, to, well, these, uh, these kids are, brains are not adult brains. They don't fully develop. Now we know from neuroscience that the brains don't fully be developed until age 24. And they can, um, and there are critical periods for, um, in neuroscience for brain development. Um, and that's the first five years and up and then progressively up to age 18. The experiences kids have growing up change their brains. So if they're growing up hard in uh, in environments that um, have deprivation or a lot of chaos or uncertainty, um, certainty is a big world word these days. Um, yeah, that changes sure. the brain structure and makes them either hyper um, vigilant, hyper reactive, or down regulates them into kind of a depression. Um, so they're actually changing. They, their brain structures are actually changing, and that's why you see uh, them acting out um, or doing poorly in school. So then the term trauma-informed uh, interventions and programming started to become uh, integrated into uh, all child child-serving agencies throughout uh, Clark County and throughout the United States. Uh, the uh, and we were on a roll until the Great Recession. So, and MacArthur Foundation got got this idea, and then they they gave grants to all these different projects throughout the nation. And we got one of them in uh, two thousand uh, eight um, for a five year grant to um, look at system integration uh, for ju- uh, juveniles in the court system and and connect up child services with. with mental health, with probation, with the schools, with um, the adult criminal justice system, and, and, and integrate those all together so that we were all using that model and, and then also communicating across those systems and bridging the silos. Even though I was working with victims every day and hearing, you know, your pain, the stories, it was one of the most satisfying experiences I've ever had in my life to be able to um, have uh, to facilitate empathy building experience with the kids and also uh, create an environment where people could address the harms and have um, meaningful resolutions and healing in the process. I was going to say, in some cases, helping facilitate that actual healing and getting to see changes uh, actually manifest in these kids right in front of your eyes has to be pretty damn rewarding. Oh, yeah. And uh, and, and then working with these one, wonderful, innovative uh, people at the juvenile court, Ernie Beach-White and Eric Gilman and Pat Escamilla, and the current uh, juvenile court administrator, uh, Chris Simmons-Meyer, I think she's the first, could be wrong, but I think she's the first uh, female in uh, administrator of, of, the, of this juvenile court. There are others throughout the nation, of course, but of Clark County. And she and I worked together as, uh, when she was a probation counselor. And so, so she is one of those people that really got it and brought that, that, that change forward. Um, 
So the detention numbers in the in kids going into detention dropped dramatically. They created just as I was leaving. They created a detention diversion program. They hired in part time psychologists, and they had offices in the court, and then they had. PhD students from local colleges come in and work with the kids. So that was that culture began to be embedded right in the court system rather than referring out all the time. It was right in the court, and that changes everything when you when you have access to that, and then you begin to hear the, that vocabulary, and then it, it then it it uh, we began to train the judges and the commission the court commissioners about that. Uh, and they, um, most of them understood it and they said, yeah, we want something that's really going to make a difference for these kids and rather than going through an revolving door. I would love to see what the statistics are from pre this program to the last 10 years and really see how much of a change it has made. Oh yeah. Well, they got it. Um, so, uh, I've, uh, I, I'd be interested in that too. But when I was there, one of the things uh, that they found out was that victims felt like they were. So, just to describe a little bit my part. Uh, I started out as uh, just a victim offender mediation coordinator, but that's a big thing anyway. It's not just a victim offender mediation. But what I meant by just though was that we would contact victims and ask them whether they wanted to meet with the kid if the kid was appropriate. Um, again, with whatever support they needed, however long time it took to set up the meeting. And uh, with my mental health background and trauma, uh, uh, understanding of trauma, I could assess the, the kids' readiness for that and uh, what kind of support would be needed to bring them together. And sometimes uh, there would be, uh, there's been, so some kids, they go, you know, for example, a group of kids go and slash a bunch of tires of a yeah. bunch of neighbors, right? Uh, that that happens every once in a while. They, you know, they do things in the neighborhood, vandalism and stuff. But so imagine it's not only one kid, but it's five kids and 10 neighbors all meeting together, mm. talking about that and working things through. And the neighbors so still it, have it, that anger. The kids were thinking of it more as a joke kind of a thing. So Yeah, right. Yeah. And then, and then you know, one uh, one person who comes out and find, finds her tires last tells a story about, well, she's on chemotherapy and, and she had to get a ride to chemotherapy that day and increase more stress or whatever. Or the, and, you know, they talk about the cost of replacing tires, which, as you know, aren't, yeah, they're, aren't cheap. No. <laughs> and the kids get a little bit of an actual understanding no. of the effects that they caused with those actions instead of just exactly. having fun. Right. So then we changed it from just calling up uh, victims, identified victims, um, after we interviewed the kids to see if they wanted to meet with the the youth, um, to we created, we went from victim offender mediation program to victim impact program. And that, um, and that, changed everything because what we did with them was sent letters out to all adjudicated when a kid was adjudicated went to the court and and was uh in the process of um being adjudicated we would contact all victims by letter and let them and collect any uh 
harms that were caused, restitution cost, and also then also give them the option of a face-to-face meeting. And that that was that was a dramatic change um, because before we would only send out letters to victims and say send us any send us um, any uh, financial information about loss you've had. Do you think that the uh, face-to-face interactions helped the victims as well? Oh, hugely, yes. It, it helped uh, help them feel like they they were valued, that their that their experiences were um, important to the community. They they all all victims wanted the kids to be successful and uh, and to sit with the kids and. I first got interested in mental health uh, when after I was drafted, and uh, was um, then uh, got went through Corman uh, uh, School uh, uh, down in San Diego, and then uh, applied for uh, psychiatric technician school in the Navy, and got that because of my aptitude. And so I was stationed at Oakland Naval Hospital for three and a half years after my. Uh, boot camp and uh, primary uh, corpsman experience, and and that's where I really got you know an interest in uh, in, psych- in psychology and psychiatry. So fast forwarding, to, so I worked a lot in inpatient and uh, in the community mental health settings. And one of the things about the restorative justice programming at the juvenile court that was so interesting to me is that you could prevent so many problems by early interventions and having a sensitivity built in and a trauma-informed approach working with kids and identifying kids that had traumatic experiences uh, that, that were going to interfere with any type of education accountability uh, uh, program that you set up, and you needed to address that first. Um, and even as part of the taking accountability, is that you uh, you ask the person to participate in the family, the kid in the family, to participate in getting mental health services, so they can uh, resolve a lot of the anxiety, the uh, the acting out, or the depression that was causing uh, the um, the issues uh, for kids and families helping to get them actual Um, resources instead of relying on the same patterns of behavior that were causing the problems in the first place yeah exactly so you would disrupt that and then bring in uh, what kids really need rather than what they really don't need which was more uh, harshness more um, uh, one-size-fits-all approaches Um, and and to front load the system with uh, front load the with an evaluation of their uh, trauma load and um, and then hook them up with mental health services uh, or chemical dependency services or family services or uh, tutoring in the schools or integration or working with the schools and helping the schools understand. So a lot of the meetings we uh, that I had had mentors and uh, uh, faith community members or um, school representatives in them because the outcome of the meeting often that we wanted people to bridge into those services. Um, so it was a, what it is and still exists today with all the budget cuts over, um, in the state, uh, that, that, uh, 
victim impact program is still up and running, which uh, it, um, emphasizes its value and the importance of that um, in in this local juvenile court's uh, philosophy. And then there was also uh, the state has a policy, best practice policy and review um, entity uh, where they look at uh, innovative techniques and, and look at projects and, and, this, and do an evaluation of it. And this this model was clear, clearly hands down, very effective and, and reduced recidivism and led to, led to better outcomes. So um, that that was uh, one of the things that uh, that's where I I became really uh, focused on community uh, initiatives and community mental health and activism and through that mediation process. I also got trained uh, as a serious violent crime dialogue facilitator in the state of Oregon. Um, during that time, yeah, there's so our um, there there began a um, a regional network of restorative justice workers in Oregon and Washington, and uh, and also in California. But we were uh, really partnered with the Portland groups in Salem and Eugene, and and uh, so Clark County. So we'd have regional we'd have regional um, uh, retreats. Um, educational retreats over a couple of days where uh, the uh, probation counselors, judges, uh, mental health therapists, juvenile court support staff, victim services staff would all come together and there would be outside pre- presenters from around the nation or we would be presenting our program, they'd be presenting theirs. And so we, we, we created this um, regional network. And through that process, um, I got ex- um I heard about training to become a serious violent crime uh, facilitator uh, in the penitentiary system in in Oregon through their victim service, their VINE program. Victim, I can't remember what it stands for, but it's a victim services program. And they then trained up people who had uh, victim offender mediations or other mediation skill sets training to be co- to facilitate as volunteers face to face if if all circumstances were uh, supportive of that and it was a safe it could be a safe meeting face to face meetings with victims inside the uh, the correctional system or with people. Who had been paroled afterwards with with victims and their their offenders, and so these were serious crimes uh, uh, of uh, that caused really serious harms, um, and the they would we would only bring people together um, after uh, if a victim was interest expressed an interest in meeting, and we met with the offender multiple times and, and ensured that there was enough mental health support for people to go forward. And and that was extremely uh, powerful experience. Um, I mean, sometimes... to help get closure on some of those major kind of cases, I, I can't even imagine, oh, really. Right. And pe- people, their PTSD went away, right? Post-traumatic stress disorders. Uh, they they began to sleep at night. They stopped taking psychiatric medications. They didn't need as much mental health therapy. 
um, after those sessions, after after the encounter, because the, the the emotional resolution was was so uh, profound that people can move on from that and let it go, and and uh, not necessarily forgive. The forgiveness that, that that's a big word, but they could understand and and understand and 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 reconcile that that happened to me and understanding a little bit more about the offender and what their mindset was and to have uh, the offender um, acknowledge the harms in a safe environment. They could process it a whole lot better, like you said, because of the offender actually acknowledging the harm that they had caused uh, Mm -hmm. alleviates a lot of that mental pressure. Right, and even then, it didn't even require a face-to-face meeting. Often, it was just clarification sessions where you'd meet with people individually and carry information back and forth. Um, even that process could, was helpful to people. And it also, it was primary, it was victim-driven and victim-initiated. Um, <clears throat> so, for example, if a offender uh, through the pastoral counseling or whatever in the correction system heard about that program and was interested in it, then they would send a message to the victim uh, program in victim services program in the Department of Corrections. And and then if a victim came forward and was interested, they didn't go out and contact the victims in, in this model. But the, if a victim expressed interest, then, then they would yeah, say, yes, the, this, this offender would like to meet with you. And, and then we start that, that process. So you'd have cases where people were murdered, uh, uh, incest, sexual assault, uh, rapes, uh, burglaries. Uh, um, and so all all of those really traumatic experiences were addressed in that model. And I think it's still going on. And it's a national model, again, coming from the restorative justice uh, initiatives and looking at crime through a restorative justice lens of of uh, Acknowledging the harms, addressing the impacts, and looking for healing between individuals and the community. Well, and that's where reform really has to begin, is making people more aware that there's even a problem in the first place. Exactly, exactly. And we even, uh, we even in Clark County, and I think that probably it happened in Clark County, it was probably happening in other places, we, we would even arrange meetings between the uh, youth, their families, and uh, the arresting officers sometimes because of the circumstances of the, of the arrest. Uh, the youth might have been acting out, assaulting, or in some way put the, uh, the law enforcement person in jeopardy of either hurting the kid or, uh, or themselves. So... Um, so and, and a lot of uh, officers, uh, law enforcement officers, would would participate in that program and say, "Listen, I want to go home every night, you know, and this is my family, and this is how it affected me, and I really want you to have a better life." So that also then began to uh, that philosophy began to be uploaded into the um, law enforcement perspective on on community policing. Um, so that that it it just was a it just is a this is where we need to go with the reallocation of resources uh, away from um, the uh, the 
the um, the police enforcement side, yeah, police enforcement side, right? Because that's the wrong tool for many of us. We certainly need safe communities. In Absolutely, fact, we need we need more. Uh, I mean, this is a larger national conversation about where all the money goes. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, where did all that money go anyway? So, uh, and and about having uh, federal assistance with local communities so you can have more more police. And but be trained on community interventions. So when we have, I was chair of the neighborhood association for many years, and we would have. Uh, uh, I live in the county, so we'd have a county sheriff come there and liaison with our neighborhood meetings. They would show up, and we'd talk with them about what was going on in the community, and they would give us some reports and make some suggestions and stuff. And so they got to know us, and when we got to know them as they were patrolling the neighborhood, and that, that connection was really invaluable um, for for uh, having a sense of who is patrolling the community and the, what our issues are. Um, so that's, you know, that's common idea of community policing, but when you add the restorative piece into it and that these kids are not criminals, but rather they are uh, kids that have a develop, developmental challenges psychological developmental challenges that can be addressed by trauma-informed uh, in interventions that in, include robust commu- uh, community outreach and, and integration of systems. Uh, you change you change everything. And then you have the tools. So, that, for example, we've been talking forever. I think Portland has it, and we had it a little bit. But mental health in this, uh, mental health outreach work is going out with law enforcement so yeah. it, you, you, ha- you have that de-escalation piece available to you and there's more tools available other than a, uh, an order that's not met a taser followed by uh, the, the deadly force I was going to say it's, it's so much more important to have somebody there to de-escalate and understand the situation than pulling a taser or a firearm out right we, and in Clark County, and uh, so through that net- network of restorative justice uh, programming throughout Oregon and Washington, we began to interact with law enforcement and do trainings for law enforcement on de-escalation techniques, um, crisis intervention de-escalation techniques, not turning them into social workers, but giving them another tool to work with in a way of talking to people that are in mental health crisis, for example, that can de-escalate them and so you don't need to use um, more force. Um, this is something I learned working in inpatient psychiatry <laughs> years ago in the Navy with these big <clears throat> big Marines, you know, they were on, uh, they had post-traumatic stress or had some other problem. And they, I worked on a like psychiatric unit, so... Oh, do you mind if I ask what, uh, what years those were with the Army and stuff? Oh, sure, 1968 to 72. So r- during the, the Vietnam crisis as well, everyone coming back, I'm sure there was plenty to be dealing with. Exactly, right. So so that that's I was drafted. I served four years as a uh, psychiatric uh, as a psychiatric corpsman at Oakland Naval Hospital. Well, three and a half years after I did my initial training, and then when I got out of the Navy, I went. I got a job in. I was stationed in Oakland. I got a job um, as a psychiatric technician. Uh, that was a category of uh, skill in the uh, 
kind of was below a nurse, uh, a licensed practical nurse, but you could give out medications and participate in some therapy stuff. It was a low skill set training. Um, and I got hired at the University of San Francisco Medical Center in their crisis intervention unit. And that's where I learned about community psychiatry mm. and the benefit of working community and going into people's homes and following them out of the crisis center and trying to create an, an integrated approach. And that was at the time when Reagan also um, uh, appropriately was governor and uh, and uh, began to move people out of uh, the state hospitals back oh. in the community. Great movement, great idea, but the funding didn't follow and then it collapsed into um, uh, underserved populations and chaos and homelessness. I was going to say, the, uh, the homeless population yeah. has just increased exponentially since then because there's, there is no funding to actually do the mental health portion that is needed. Absolutely. One of my, my last uh, uh, job working in mental health integration projects was, um, as I mentioned, uh, with Clark County here, and uh, I would coordinate people coming out of one of my jobs was um, uh, becoming uh, getting notified that someone was coming, a sex offender was coming out of, uh, out of uh, the penitentiary system, the correction system, and needed housing. So then I would get on the phone and try to find housing and set up mental health and chemical dependency treatment. The same for kids going into or coming out of residential treatment. Mm. Also, uh, seniors that were homeless or people that were homeless trying to find them uh, temporary shelter. For example, um, you know, domestic violence survivors and things like that that didn't have a place to go. So we're setting up all of these programs, trying to find uh, and finding funding for them. And and then providing what they call uh, what we call um, wraparound services. So rather than in the services being individualized in different silos, we would we would create a a, a integrated plan called a wraparound plan that, that every that the ER would have, that the primary care physician would have, the chemical dependency would have, and children's family services would have, that homeless services would have, the police department. Would hopefully would have too as well in some cases. I remember one meeting when I was facilitating it. This was back in probably 2004 or something. And this uh, fellow had a really challenging alcohol uh, abuse problems. Was continually ending up in the ER and in jail and the mental health system on and on and on. So we had the sheriff, the under sheriff, the head of mental health. We had all these people in the room talking about how we were going to work with this one guy. He was in the deep end of the pool, realizing that any program that we set up could be used preventively for other people in the system experiencing or going down that same path. So that was the that was the kind of thinking that that, that needs to happen in order to change the. Um, the tool set that, uh, that we have, uh, there's that, I think it goes like if the, if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything is a nail, right? So yep. you just hammer it down rather than look at other creative ways to, um, and, uh, age appropriate and, uh, and using brain science developmentally appropriate for, uh, interventions for, for people. 
so that uh, <clears throat> that was that took me up to 2009, and then after I left the Jim McCarter, came back on on the MacArthur Foundation grant, and and did a year's worth of training with a, a school social worker who had just retired as well. And we went out and did trauma-informed trainings for uh, schools, for parents groups, for Department of Children and Family Services, for um, for mental health programs, for educators, um, for probation counselors, for juvenile, uh, for judges, all all around uh, the Southwest Washington, um, and in, also into Oregon. So. That that is, I thought. Wow, now that's really interesting. Is that you can change? It's not rocket science; it's brain science, and you can change <laughs> people's brains and then their behavior, and you get a totally different outcome because you're you're encountering people where they're at, and you're really engaging them in a, a conversation about what they need. You're helping to make uh, things click in their head a little bit and make changes, as opposed to. Uh, like I said, going back to those old patterns we all try and go rely on from uh, early education and stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and doing so. So the uh, bumper sticker was: if a kid's in trouble, that means the family's in trouble. So it's not you only work with the kid; you work with the family and the community the family's in, and bring resources together for the family for. Uh, for intensive intervention and long-term intermittent support when they need it. And they can then go get their, uh, and then their tripwires in the system for that support. And also people then feel empowered to uh, reach out when they, when they have trouble. Um, like many people are trying to do right now with the uncertainty of the COVID uh, yeah. pandemic, right? So we're totally, total. We're not prepared. I mean, our toolkits are—we <laughs> burned through those really quickly. <laughs> yeah, our we did. Skills. Yeah. Um, so it turns out. Uh, so, so after I left the, uh, I retired from the juvenile court. I was. I had. A, I played forty years of tennis on hard surfaces, and I wore my knees out, and my mm. shoulder, my back. I was wondering and, how uh, you got into the uh, industry at all. Right. Yeah. So I, I I started doing research on that because that's what I was doing, research on what the best practices for this and that um, condition, mental health or physical. Um, and uh, I, was, I was really surprised to find out that it could help with uh, arthritis inflammation. I was taking handfuls of ibuprofen and leave which is, when you look at the research, is not a good thing for your body. It causes wow. kidney failure, heart failure, and it, it, it eats your stomach lining. I wow. say the, wow. uh, the NSAID's long-term use is uh, definitely not recommended. Right, just like with aspirin and now with Tylenol as well. Mm-hmm. People are overdosing all those over-the-counter. So I thought, huh, okay. So I, I went and uh, went through the authorization process, um, Became a medical cannabis uh, patient uh, since 2013, something like that. Oh. And uh, maybe it was 12. Um, and uh, and then trying to find, then began the search for what what kind of uh, ratios and preparation. Began to educate myself about the science of it uh, as it was emerging. 
And um, I read about in 2000. So that was so that was treating myself and finding that there were other people in the community. And I um, and see back then there were there were very few dispensaries around, just a few. But you go into and find, and then I started finding. Well, there's not only uh, flour that you could smoke, which I was used to from uh, growing up in the '60s. I yeah. graduated from high school in '67 and uh, got exposed to Acapulco Gold and all that stuff <laughs> that was coming into California, Los Angeles at the time. But you know, just kind of dabbled in it um, here and there, and then um, in the Navy. <laughs> Uh, since I was stationed stateside, uh, there was, and I was stationed next to Berkeley. Uh, ah. There was also a little exposure to that and opportunities, although it was not a good thing if you got caught with it. I was going to um, say, you don't want to fail maybe, that drug uh, test. And you don't want to, well, they weren't doing drug tests back then, but really? unless you, unless something really, really, yeah, they didn't have that fully developed. But if you were, were seen out and about or somehow got a criminal charge in civilian court, then that would come back on you. Gotcha. Um, in on the Navy system. Anyway, then I, I was living in San Francisco, uh, uh, right across from Golden Gate Park, two doors, doors down from the old Jefferson Airplane House. Wow. And you can imagine that environment there, right? <laughs> so there was a lot of opportunity to experiment in the early uh, uh, in the early seventies. Um, so I got over to San Francisco in '73. Lived there for a couple of years. So. Uh, so I, I, you know, I had my uh, experimentation period and and found, you know, what uh, that I could function if I did this and that, and uh, and there, there was also in in psychi in among the staff in psychology and psychiatry departments, there was a lot of people that were knew about that, and so in our parties together, we would um, we would share share those um, experiences together. But fast forwarding to um, my retirement, I, I, so I, I said, "Well, oh, it's not only smoking it like back in the day, you know, joint or a, a, a pipe, yeah. but you have tinctures, you have topicals, you you have um, uh, patches, you have like nicotine type patches." Uh, you have all these different ratios, one to one, and this 10 was to before one, the uh, the recreational side. So the medical side actually yeah. had a lot of that developed beforehand, and it's kind of gone away with the recreational side. It's kind of just now coming back to those alternatives in some ways. Yeah, yeah. The, the, so that, I'd like to spend a little time talking about that. Um, so. Um, because I really got in, once I found out that it was working for me and it actually controlled my arthritis and also, um, helped me with, uh, post-traumatic stress. Cause I had a, a, um, a lot of the things that ways, reason I related to the kids is because I grew up and, uh, oh, my mother was diagnosed with, uh, mental illness when I was two years old mm. and she was institutionalized for 10, 15 years. Wow. Uh, I lived in a series of foster, uh, of, of in the hospital and abusive foster care environments and, um, oh. even was in a military boarding school at, for nine months and nine years old and exposed to all of the bullying and, uh, um, abuse in that environment. As I say, it's not a very good so, environment for any child. No, no. So I, but I was lucky, uh, for whatever reason, uh, I had, 
good enough uh, environments going along, and uh, the my mother's memoirs didn't start until I was like in uh, two or three, uh, little severely. So I had some anchor and maybe good genes too. Um, so I used that as the foundation for my work in mental health and building empathy and understanding what people are going through. So I looked when I, when I said, well, this cannabis stuff is working for that too, for my post-traumatic stress. When you have, when you have those kind of experiences, sometimes you have breakthrough, um, nightmares and dreams and stuff. And I didn't use much. I was fortunate because I was a fair uh, mental health uh, nurse. I I understood the value of intermittent uh, therapeutic intervention and used mental health therapy over the years. But the cannabis uh, and only very few pharmaceutical drugs, just once or twice for short periods uh, with high periods of anxiety. But I, I found those to be really uncomfortable and too many side effects. So uh, when I found that cannabis was helpful in that as, as well, that was a nice surprise. I started doing the research on that. And I said, huh, that's interesting. Uh, so I was having those symptoms, and I found out that can- the cannabis was helpful. And I, um, I started um, exploring that on my own, and then I got the authorization and started to find out other patients in the cannabis community. But um, so that was, I was backing up. But I have a friend who was running this program at Clark College. I was retired. She said, well, why don't you come over here and you can teach you the lifelong learning program about what you've learned about the brain um, and anything else you want related to healthcare or other topics. So I put together a, a five-week, ten-hour curriculum called Aging in the Brain. Uh, that help people understand the, uh, that lifestyle changes can prevent cognitive decline and even uh, reduce the risk of dementia. Big thing. Yeah. Um, and then, so I, that was, I started teaching these classes in 2013. And then I, uh, expanded that into, uh, well, what are the lifestyle changes that can be helpful? And then began to create classes like that, take control of your health, how to manage stress and pain. A lot of people have stress and pain as they age. Um, and then I, I brought it out to the general population in evening classes in community education on uh, the science of resiliency and how to, how to reprogram your brain and um, other topics. Uh, and I drew on my mediation background um, and t- uh, taught a class called Citizen Salon where we, for uh, a five-week, uh, ten-hour series, where we um, take different political or social hot topics. And I would either do the research or have a guest speaker from the community. Uh, there was an expert in there would come in, and then I'd facilitate a dialogue afterwards. First hour, we have content. The second hour, I facilitate a dialogue with people talking about issues like gun control or criminal justice reform or health care. Um, uh, and then I also uh, did a class on uh, uh, um, medical maladies and the, the pharmaceutical companies and what our current supply system is like and are we overusing them and things like that. Um, 
But in, as I was doing research on uh, an incognitive decline, I came across this uh, this internist who's running a program down at the University of San Francisco called the Spectrum Program that was showing people how they could open up um, their, but just with lifestyle supervised and fully integrated uh, healthcare uh, approaches, stress management, diet changes, exercise, they could open up occluded arteries in their heart without any medication or surgery. And if you open up something in your heart, you open up the vessels in your brain, you open up the vessels throughout your body. And so he was listing all the anti-inflammatory um, approaches because we've figured out that inflammation is one of the major problems with chronic disease and with including arteries and such like that. Yeah. And he listed, he listed on that list along with, uh, eating more blueberries and, uh, exercising and stress management and other, and eating other anti-inflammatory foods. He listed cannabis. Really? And I said, what? Yeah. I said, really? And so it wasn't really? even CBD, it was just cannabis at that point. Right. Yeah, he said cannabinoids. And I said, cannabinoids, well, that's an interesting term. I've always heard of marijuana and I've heard a little bit of people using cannabis. Of course, cannabis was a botanical term, and marijuana, as I later discovered, was not even a word in Spanish. <laughs> it's a... It's a it's a slang term that came from the, the West Coast of Mexico. Um, and it had to do, I think, with uh, the type of cannabis they got that came from India or something like that. So they differentiated that. Anyway, um, I started, so I started integrating that into my classes on aging the brain and preventing cognitive decline. And, and then at that time, so it was 2016, the fall of 2016, and the Clark College started to teach a three-hour, four-credit class in their healthcare curriculum. This, this is the moment to pay tuition for, you know, yeah. for hundreds of dollars for credit. Um, by one of their um, masters in health on can and the class was entitled Cannabis Senior Health. So my uh, <clears throat> my manager in a uh, community mental health program called me up and said. Hey, they're teaching this in the credit program. Why don't you put something together for us in community education? I said, huh. <laughs> well, now that you mentioned that, you know, I've been researching that because I've been looking at uh, how cannabis helps prevent cognitive decline and reduces inflammation. So, sure, okay. So, starting in 2000, January 2017, I began teaching twice a year uh, until COVID. Uh, Classes on cannabis and your health, a five, a five week, 10 hour curriculum. And I did research and then I brought in uh, dispensary owners, uh, local pharmacists, local uh, authorization people, patients, uh, producers to talk about cannabis. And then I, I would talk about the, uh, the emerging science and the case studies that are supporting the research and uh, uses use as adjunct therapy and sometimes replacing the pharmaceutical. And then I ran into these, these patients, these patients that were, um, and advocates and advocates, activists, that told me about this cannabis science conference that happens every year in Portland where people nationally and internationally, the researchers come and talk about the research. And growers come and talk about growing and testers 
and testing companies to come and talk about testing and having good products. Yeah. And I walked That's into the, that. Uh, expo, said, right? Yeah. Well, it was, it was, it was at the expo center, right? Yeah. The yeah. downtown Portland, huge, huge event, you know, thousands of people there walking around. Um, and it was all normalized talking about like adults about what the science is. And, and then I was off, I said, whoa, this is, this people, I have to understand this. And the reason that it was so important to me was because I, because of the polypharmacy that we're exposed to in, um, especially seniors who are getting, uh, like five to seven different, you know, most people over 65 are five to seven different pharmaceutical drugs that have all these different side effects and adverse uh, reaction profiles from the drugs. And you're taking medication um, for the side effects so that they don't get worse and, yeah. Yeah. And that's especially true in psychiatric medications mm. um, and uh, and in spades in uh, antidepressant medications. In the, and then I, in, as part of that research, and actually before I even uh, tripped on the cannabis, I was, um, as, a, as a, being an adjunct therapy or maybe a replacement therapy for uh, some of our major chronic diseases, um, I started doing research on pharmacy and how that's leading to cognitive decline and making things worse and while the hospitalizations and deaths are being caused by by uh, the polypharmacy. And then I found out <clears throat> the relationship between um, on psychiatric, that was mental health background, so I was interested in psychiatric medic research on psychiatric medications, long-term use. And all this research that had been covered up by the pharmaceutical companies about the deleterious effects of, of antidepressants. And that the New England Journal of Medicine that published articles about this back in 1998 by their, by their editorial staff were then removed by the by the influence of the pharmaceutical company. Money speaks. That's just corporate, you know, it's corporate healthcare. So money speaks and uh, people don't have access to the information and their doctors are overwhelmed and their doctors are, are uh, the, the, formula, uh, <coughs> the pharmaceutical formula uh, that they're, they're told they need to use as best practice, and then if they don't use that, that particular approach for this particular condition, they have to write up why. Um, and a lot of times, which is a, a good way to do that, but the, what was happening, it seemed like that the pharmaceutical companies were actually dictating what, what medicine should be used rather than the physician practicing the art of medicine or withholding medicine unless it's absolutely needed. And then you have, I think we're the only country other than, what is that, maybe New Zealand or some, Australia, that allows uh, direct consumer marketing on TV. Mm. And so people are coming in at the doctor's offices and saying, I saw this on TV and I want this, I want this. And then doctors, yeah. and then on the other end, pharmaceutical reps would, a very attractive pharmaceutical reps would come in and <laughs> the doctor's office and give them samples or show up at their conferences and buy the and, meals, um, big spreads for the meals, office. And and give them 
give them cooked data on the efficacy of the drug. So then I was looking, huh, so cannabis does this with this kind of side effect in this profile. It's not a panacea, but it certainly uh, is less risky than a lot of medications. Yeah. Um, and we were talking about the uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, for example. Um, if you could, uh, can, uh, certain CBD, THC combinations have a, an anti-inflammatory profile that's like 20, uh, 20% higher than uh, the pharmaceutical anti-inflammatory. So, I said, well, this, I got to start talking about this stuff. And that led me to contacts with the patient community. And in our first class in January 2017, we ended with, well, what do we do now? And so you can come back and do another class. And people said, well, we need some place where we can keep talking about this so we can have support. That was actually so the class I'm, where we uh, reconnected, actually. So, right, uh, yeah. exactly. You were in that class, right, yeah. And, <laughs> and you talk, started talking about your work and, um, and uh, uh, the uh, wonderful volcano project. Right? <laughs> uh, uh, oh, yes. We didn't talk uh, vaporizer. Yeah. So, um, and I was just a novice, and uh, I had some of the research down, but uh, what I found was I was, I was just presenting the tip of uh, the iceberg. The information was just, it had, it's all over the place about the efficacy and benefit of cannabis products as adjunctive therapy, um, especially in cancer treatment uh, for the side effects of chemotherapy, increasing appetite, helping with nausea, <clears throat> and, um, and reducing anxiety, um, so, and I, I had actually, uh, uh, in my uh, nursing career, after the in the, in the 80s, when, they, um, when we lost the budget um, for mental health services, uh, it was a Reagan recession, uh, I didn't, couldn't get a mental, community mental health job, so I, I, I worked in, uh, I went to work in an oncology department. And I uh, eventually found myself working at Oregon Health Sciences University in the Department of Oncology, giving uh, out chemo, uh, creating chemotherapy, mixing them together up in a event, mixing the blood products, and uh, treat you know really intensive uh, uh, med- medical interventions for people who were facing serious illness. And right there in the narcotics store was were six joints. We were part of one of the early studies to see if cannabis could help people with nausea and vomiting. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a, 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 they actually had a synthetic uh, drug, all THC at the time, called Marinol, and had been around for a while. Yeah, um, I've heard but, some uh, uh, interesting things about it. What have, what have you heard about Marinol? Uh, the straight synthetic THC would produce uh, the high without a lot of the other cannabinoid benefits. So you would get right. an extreme high that would help with some of it, uh, but that uh, people uh, tended to prefer the flower or uh, something with a mix. Right. Uh, the, the, the physiological effects, of the mental effects, the psychiatric effects of the of the. Now, you know, many people hallucinate, and again, a nausea prevention. So that 
I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting, you know. And, um, but the, the study, I thought the study was, uh, was skewed because they would only give it to people after they started vomiting, hmm. not beforehand. <laughs> so no preventative uh, effect, did, just afterwards. No preventative Right afterwards, just so they see if it, it would work. Anyway, anyway, so that touching back to that, that was kind of interesting. Um, so going forward, um, back uh, back 2017, 18, 19, um, during these classes, uh, started we uh, people wanted the opportunity to meet regularly and to talk with other cannabis patients about what was working for them and to hear about uh, new, op- new options available, about routes of administration, or you can take a picture. What's the thing about suppositories? You can have cannabis suppositories. And how does that work? And what's the thing about concentrated oil and the treatment for cancers and putting cancers in remission? All these kind of things. So we started um, calling them on mental health background and the value of people talking with each other, we started a monthly support group that met in uh, one of the the patient's homes, who um, Jeremy Robbins, who uh, has been a longtime advocate in Oregon, Washington, because he became, he had a wheelchair bound after a bicycle accident in 1999, and was on this huge list of 20, 30 medications to deal with all the paralysis and the pain and stuff. So he became a cannabis patient in like 94 or something like that and has had this incredible story and knowledge too. He was the one who introduced me um, to the cannabis science conferences. Definitely um, looking forward to having so, him on on our next interview as well. Oh, he, yeah, he's a, he's a wonderful one. He's a compelling story, and he he's he's been an activist and advocate. He's been at the legislature, you know, changing hearts and minds about this stuff. But that's Oregon, where he lived in, uh, in Portland for many years. So, um, long story wrapping up here. That led to uh, so we started meeting in his living room. We had, we had about some five, ten people there. Sometimes fifteen. Um, and we bring in some guest speakers sometimes, uh, and um, but most of the time people would just talk about what's working, or we'd have a topic that we'd open it up with uh, new research. And then there was uh, it happened there was a CBD store uh, called American Shaman that opened up here close by uh, in Washington, just a few miles from my home, and I, they had this beautiful lobby in there. And, uh, one thing led to uh, one of the one of the students walked in there and said, and, and then came back and told me about it and said, hey, they, they might be interested in hosting support group here. So we started meeting there for about a year and a half, and out of that, we uh, we had enough energy to uh, to bring people together and create an organization for patients in the Pacific Northwest called Cannabis Patients. Pacific Northwest, and we just got our uh, Washington State uh, nonprofit status, and we have a website now. Congratulations! Uh, where we, thank you, thank you. It was uh, it was a labor of love and so much support uh, coming from uh, 
the cannabis community. We're in the process of filing for our IRS uh, 501c status so we can accept donations. Because we, uh, to support the, the website, the domain name, and all that, that kind of stuff, which is not a lot of money, but but there are, there's such a huge need to get the word out to people. I started uh, out of this. We started to go around pre-COVID and do talks at assisted living programs. Um, education is talks. so key, and so many of the seniors only associate it with the hippies in the '60s. No offense, but right. you know that's the what all they've been told about it. Exactly. Or, or they, you know, <clears throat> that said, when I was doing these talks. People would come up to me afterwards and said, yeah, and here's what I've been trying. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, how that's working? How's that working for you? And, uh, so here's some, you know, um, here's some resources to look at other options. And, um, again, and then also trying to help people think of ways to talk with their physicians about it and, and how, how to have a dialogue with your physician. It's really challenging uh, for um Pain patients, especially, uh, they're often on contracts with their their physician group or, or health plan that their their use of appropriately monitoring of uh, pain medications, use of pain medications, and then they have random uh, uh, drug tests to see if they're using any other drugs, right? Yeah. So that. So even though they could use less opiate, less narcotics, if they added it, or maybe even completely do away with the narcotics. And, I've known many people who um, have. have. Right. And they're, and, and, they're, and they're looking at the research and saying, I want to do this. I, I know, I've heard people saying that it would be helpful. And, and then they're crying, saying, I can't do it because my doctor will take me off of all pain medication to fire me. My uh, uncle was going through uh, chemo and um, couldn't have any cannabis in his system or anything like that. And I, it just didn't make any sense to me in this day and age when we know the science behind it. But his insurance and everything else and his doctor would drop him if it was there. It was just like... Frustrating not to be able to help out. Oh, it's it's frustrating. We used to paraphrase Sancho Gupta, um, CNN's medical um, choice um, doctor, and uh, somebody who used said, to be against cannabis. Absolutely, used to be against it. Said that he thought people malingering, just get it. There was no research, but then he found out that all the research that was being that there was other research being done in other countries. And all the research that was being done, almost 90% of it in the United States was on the negative effects of it. Mm-hmm. Not looking at the broad, broad implications of it and where it might be helpful, but rather the negative effects of it. And guess what? Who? And the research was funded by pharmaceutical companies. Um, and so, um, so after he found that, in his uh, intellectual curiosity led, led him to, uh, Research from Canada, from the Czech Republic, where Ethan Russo set up a foundation. He's a neuroscientist from the University of Washington that couldn't do studies here in Washington. So he had to go to Czech Republic. There's studies coming out of Spain, Germany, Australia. Um, and all that's showing 
you know, in uh, phase one and two clinical trials that have incredible benefits. And the case studies uh, that are, and by the way, case studies are where a lot of are the grassroots, when people start trying things, and their physicians become aware of it and start to write up stuff that then gets researched. Yeah. So the patients were driving the case studies in, in mental health and in chronic pain. Epilepsy. Parkinson's, for example. Yep. Epilepsy. Absolutely. Autism. My goodness. And at those cannabis science conferences, uh, I just I just ate up. I, I couldn't get enough of the research. But what brought me to my knees was the grizzly bear mamas that came there and talked about how their, their kids were on this plethora of this, this, this um, <clears throat> witch's brew, a polypharmacy that was leaving them incapacitated kids with epilepsy, with autism, with uh, severe cancers. And when they were trying to integrate and found out that cannabis could help as an adjunct therapy and replace many of the medications, sometimes all of them, yeah. when their kids were functional, they said, I'm going to move to another state, or if they couldn't move to where I could get access to it, and there's lots of stories about that. Um, and there's, of course, the classic story of Charlotte Figgy in uh, Colorado, who had the, the um, Charlotte's Web. That horrible. And Charlotte's Web was developed by those um, high CBD, Charlotte's Web, was developed for her treatment of her epilepsy. She was having, you know, 30 episodes a, a day, and she was developmentally delayed, and um, the the can, can the type CBD product that they grew uh, reduced her seizures like three or four a week, and she started to come back. Was able to attend, go to school. So those stories are coming out, and then these mamas turn into grizzly bear, and they go right at the medical profession. They go right at the legislature, and they change it. They change it, and they change the research. They change the legislative policy. But going back to your, this is reminding me about your comment about recreational versus medical. Yeah. So one of the things that happened was that the states realized that they can make a lot of tax money off of making recreational, which from a social justice and a criminal justice perspective, given the risk um, benefit profile and the addiction profile of cannabis compared to other drugs. Even um, just alcohol. Exactly, right, even, or alcohol, right. Alcohol, we've got you got nicotine, coffee, alcohol, heroin, and cocaine that <laughs> have a, have the highest profile. And cannabis is something like nine percent um, uh, habituation or, or, or rather addiction profile. And the side effects and withdrawal from it are much less uh, problematic than from those other other parts. You ever try to get off a of coffee? You got two weeks of headache. Especially when you're day two cups a day. So, um, and I just finished Sober October, and with somebody with my tolerance, and then doing literally cold turkey stop and 30 days with nothing. It was no problem at all. Yeah. So so there's that, too. You know, that's a good thing to do. Have a, have a holiday break from things and recalibrate your, your uh, endocannabinoid systems. So that's part of the research out there. You're going to the research that so convincing was that we found out that, that there were actually receptors in the body uh, that the cannabis molecules were binding with. And that was discovered in 98, 99 by Raphael Machon and the 
McEwen, I think I'm trouble pronouncing his name, an Israeli scientist. And uh, then we said, well, okay, we can we then figure out what ratios help are useful and what does the endocannabinoid system do? And it turns out that our endo means indwelling. So we have endorphins, which are uh, and encaphalins that are mimic uh, opiates in our system that are produced naturally by our brains. And we also produce endocannabinoids. And they are there as a major homeostatic, homeostatic means human balance system in our body that partners with the, in, in, uh, the endorphins and the encephalins and the glucocorticoid steroids and stress management system. And so then we started to postulate, we the scientists started to postulate that there probably is an endocannabinoid deficiency in people that is is being addressed by taking taking cannabis products that that reduces the uh, deficiency and addresses the inflammation processes and the other uh, processes that lead people out of out of uh, health imbalance. I'm so glad so you that, touched that on the, that because uh, uh, there's so many conditions that have come up over the last hundred years as we've basically eliminated cannabis from our diets uh, that. Uh, are just starting to show that this could actually be a big cause of those pains and aches that are just everyday nowadays. Uh, absolutely. A- abs- absolutely. That's where, where it's going. So um, if you look at it through that lens of an endocannabinoid deficiency, we have other deficiencies that happen because of, of the the environmental exposures, either stress or environmental toxins, and our bodies start to dysregulate and don't produce the uh, the onboard hormones, the endocrine hormones that, that leads to optimal health and in homeostatic balance. <clears throat> so we're either upregulated or downregulated. We don't have the balance. And if you and what they found, one study by um, Dr. Gary Link from Ohio State University is a neuro um, scientist there. Said, "Well, you know, it looks like that just the, just a small ratio of CBD to THC every day, no more than 1.5 THC to uh, to a little higher amount of CBD. That ratio is neuroprotective. Is neuroprotective. It prevents inflammation in the brain that leads to." Uh, cognitive decline and dementia, and it might even bust up the uh, the amygdala, the uh, amyloid and tau uh, strains that cause dementia. And uh, what? Yeah, really? I mean, so that kind of research is coming out, and, and that's going to be a huge up. crisis as we get to the baby boomer generation all starting to experience a lot of this as well. So. They're going back to this policy of assisted living, people are already experimenting with it and wondering what will help them. And that was another uh, reason we felt it was important to start an organization to help cannabis patients uh, in Pacific Northwest and have a website presence and, and get out and educate people, but also to educate providers, policymakers, and uh, people who run dispensaries. So 
after the recreational um, laws were passed and people and and states were making huge amounts of money on the taxes from that, the medical development of medical preparations started to uh, go by the wayside, and we started just looking at how to how to make people uh, more, have their more enjoyable recreational experience, which is fine too. I mean, uh, definitely not against recreational. No, uh, but but not focusing on the medical um, exactly. and replacing is is not helpful because that's at everything, and it also leaves uh, patients without medical cannabis patients without resources that uh, can uh, reduce suffering and in some cases save their lives. And a lot of, again going back to Sponsor Gupta, he said I used to think uh, you know it's just malingering, but now it's clear that it's immoral not to research and, and do interventions with medical cannabis because it works and sometimes it's the only thing that does. Amen. And I, and there's just, there's, uh, when you look at uh, the NFL and contact sports oh. um, and chronic traumatic encephalopathy. I was going to say that CTE. CTE preparation. Right. That's that's horrific. That leads to early dementia and and uh, horrific suffering. And cannabis stops it. So when they go in, so in the future, my prediction in the future, when they go into the those um, injury camps on yeah. the field, they're going to give them rapid infusion pictures or whatever way they're going to do it of THC and CBD together to reduce the, the likelihood of brain trauma. Um, because those guys take huge hits and win and do too in sports. Sean Kemp, just came, uh, the former uh, trailblazer, just came out and talked about he never took any of the pharmaceuticals, the, uh, <clears throat> the uh, medical trainers and physicians prescribed, and he just used cannabis throughout <laughs> his career. That so uh, the, 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 it doesn't surprise me with Sean Kemp, and I, I was a huge fan of him on the Sonics, but... Uh, uh, it's interesting to see how many oh, athletes, yes, sir, yeah. how many athletes yeah. are actually uh, getting into that now. Uh, Uncle Cliffy Clifford Robinson from uh, the Trailblazers has yeah. his own line. Yeah. Bo Jackson mm-hmm. has some of the best cannabis in Oregon. Um, there's just a whole bunch of people that are realizing this is going to be helpful to athletes as well. Uh, one of the things that was uh, just wonderful, was so compelling was at each of the cannabis science conferences, which held in the early, uh, like August, September, every year in Portland, commercial to go, uh, post COVID to go back to that. Um, uh, it is so supportive, so inspiring, so helpful uh, to get that information right from the source and then to use that to connect to other people in the community. And one of the panels they always have is a professional, retired professional sports panel. They have baseball players, rugby players, football players, basketball players on it, men, women. And they're all talking about how they use cannabis um, under the um, under the radar as players, but when they're retired in order to treat their injuries from repetitive use injuries and all the injuries you get from being a professional athlete, is that they use that instead of pharmaceutical, pharmaceuticals described. So um, that so these are people that were Eagle Scouts, wonderful 
you know, just incredibly disciplined uh, individuals as they have to be to, to be an elite um, athlete. Oh, yeah. Using cannabis as a way to produce suffering later in their life uh, from all the chronic uh, conditions that develop yeah, from the um, joint muscle injury and head injuries and stuff. It'll be um, a boon when we finally get some federal regulations uh, allowing us to get that off the Schedule 1 and um, not have doctors worried about losing their licenses for prescribing a medication that has been proven beneficial for decades now. Well, uh, I'd say for at least 10,000 years. <laughs> I'm uh, with you. Yeah. When you look at the, the cultural history of it and how people were uh, you know, watching what animals did and they started uh, figuring out how to cultivate and for 10,000 years ago when we started growing stuff, they said, hey, this is pretty interesting, you know, and uh, and it turned out to be something they, they took with them where human beings took wherever they went because it was so valuable. We basically and, co-evolved know. with it from the Stone Age through, I mean, and then we just right. cut it completely out of our systems for the last hundred years. And so imagine, so that's so out of our systems and we started to develop more chronic diseases and more inflammatory processes. I had a pharmacist once tell me, you know, I'm looking back on this, when you think about the early, um, <clears throat> the early U.S., how uh, hemp was a mandatory crop yeah, to grow. Absolutely. Hemp with uh, CBD and low THC used for rope for sales, for the seeds for high omega-3, for the nutritional source. That was mandatory that so, the farmers had to grow so many hectares of hemp in the colonies. And what did they do with the leftover stuff? They gave it to the animals. And what did they do with the animals? We ate the animals. Right. It was in the food chain. And and that's so it's that's, been in the food chain. That's even beneficial for it. It doesn't have to be a smoked product or something that's inhaled into it directly. Just like you said, mm -hmm. getting it into the food chain and into our systems. It would, uh, I think, definitely benefit us if we did start giving it back to the animals instead of all the uh, the antibiotics and everything else that we pump them with these days. And yeah, well, uh, I I only you know people are starting to buy only meat to, uh, meat products when they eat uh, protein that uh, it doesn't have any antibiotics or hormones in it because they're it, it changes the way our our bodies work and process um, food and uh, creates um, the imbalances that lead to chronic diseases. So all of that um, has <laughs> led me to uh, doing that class, you being in that class, and us talking today about. Uh, my journey to become a cannabis activist and advocate and the co-founder of Cannabis Patient Specific Northwest, which you can see and you can get to uh, just by typing in cannabispatientspecificnorthwest.org. And uh, we have educational materials. We have uh, information on products, uh, lots of administration, and, in, and for people in Southwest Washington, providers that will uh, work with them including um, a cannabis uh, pharmacist um, that um, she's a pharmacist who, ha who has her own cannabis journey after she developed Lyme disease and then also breast cancer. But the Lyme disease was the big one. Uh, she, she was just having a devil of a time with the 
pain and the inflammation from Lyme disease. And her um, her next door, she said next door neighbor that was um, had some cannabis and uh, did more research on that and had some. And said, "Huh, oh, that's kind of yeah, that works." And um, got got off a lot of the uh, Lyme disease medications. Again, doing more research on it. And now is taking a second master's degree from the University of Maryland in cannabis pharmacology. So that's that's what we want to do. We want to get this up into the higher education system, educate people and physicians about um, the judicious use of cannabis, and also the drug, the drug alcohol um, uh, programming. Um, uh, what we've evolved to in in the science-based, evidence-based pro, uh, drug alcohol program is a model called harm reduction. So to reduce people, to get people off of the more lethal, higher-dose medications and and get them on the lowest dose of, 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 um, of, of botanical and other medications, that uh, will enable them to function. And often that is um, involves uh, ratios of, of cannabis tinctures and uh, suppositories, patches. Um, some some people uh, still smoke a little. Um, but most, most of the patients like to... Um, the, the quickest... A lot of people still do... They think it's smoking of products that they, they're clean and pesticide-free because that gives them immediate relief. Yeah. And they follow with a tincture or a um, suppository or patch or something um, that gives them long-term relief. One of the interesting things about suppositories, although people often you know, cringe with it, um, if people who have to have for the need higher doses for pain management or they're trying it because they gone through uh, the, tri- the chemotherapy trials and the physicians say there's nothing more we, we can do for you and it's people then look around for uh, anything that might help them um, to manage the last months um, then maybe find a literature that says high doses of THC, CBD high concentration in an oil extract um, can can kill cancer cells or, or cause them to produce um, to produce less. My uh, friend so, from Genesis Farms was on our uh, third episode here, and he produces uh, RSO and has been for the medical community since 2010. And uh, there you go, exactly. Yeah, he was, produces it for the medical community specifically. Absolutely, and he grows it in a, in a cultivar, or the strain is it commonly called. Is is really important is the amount of CBD and combination of THC plus those things called terpenes, the aromatic, and other the other phytocannabinoids that you don't get in the synthesized products are what cause that what's called a synergistic or the term in cannabis um, science is entourage effect. Mm-hmm. One one stimulates the other, and you get it's not. This, this plus this plus this is an exponential effect that causes a decrease in inflammation, helps people with irritable bowel syndrome, um, Crohn's disease, <clears throat> and um, the uh, 
need for research and support for cannabis patients and medical cannabis is huge. Unfortunately, it's being blocked by the two biggest two biggest contributors to anti uh, legalization, anti cannabis research in the United States are uh, the pharmaceutical companies, mm-hmm. of course, because it, uh, what we're look, we're seeing that all states that have um, medical cannabis programs, their use of opiates, of antidepressants, of anti-anxiety medications, not steroidal anti-inflammatories are all going down, which is affecting... And we can't have people be able to grow their own medicine. Yeah, I mean, that would like be making your own wine and beer. Oh, awful. <laughs> I make a pretty good Cabernet, you know, so, um, <clears throat> yeah, that would, that would be awful. Um, <clears throat> so, the, uh, the need for that is so uh, huge, and we're right on the cusp of that. The other organization, interestingly enough, is the Catholic Church. Uh, they're the top two contributors to anti-cannabis legislation in the I would. States. I did not know that. Yeah, I didn't know it either until we looked at research. That's, that's the, Maybe we need um, uh, to get something in front of Pope Francis. He seems to be surprisingly he's uh, liberal. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's going in the right direction, although uh, I heard when he, he uh, said, well, what we should do is approve civil um, unions, right? Yeah. And then, then the, um, the LPG... LBGTQ community says, well, we already had that conversation. That's not what we want. We want full legal recognition of marriage. You don't want to go backwards. So, um, but it's a movement, right? It's exactly. Movement. And and so we, now we have like 35 medical states and like maybe, I think we'll have 15 or 16 uh, after this election um, recreational states. And if we change our administration Today, <laughs> and we have um, people that are um, creating policy based on science and based on best public health. Uh, you know, we, we, we you know, but we you know, we talk about how it was uh, made illegal. Um, throughout the 1980s, it was, it was part of the form of the tinctures. The uh, cannabis tinctures are part of the pharmacopoeia in the United States, and people yeah. uh, would get them from their doctors, right? Um, but then we had that the crazy ethnocentric, xenophobic uh, 1920s and 30s, where we were afraid of uh, all the immigrants coming in and taking away the jobs and changing our culture. And it happened that right after the, the uh, there's a lot of immigration coming from Mexico in the Civil War down there. Well, and um, and Howard, uh, was it Howard Hughes? Whatever. That's not the right one, is it? Uh, the media con- uh, mogul back in the day that uh, Citizen Hurst? Kane. Yeah, yes. Randall Hurst. Yeah, yeah. Was, uh, they had just come up with a way to uh, harvest cannabis on a regular basis and make pulp for paper after he had already invested mm-hmm. in all the lumber. And who controls the media yeah. at the time? So... You put it First, all together. Yeah. And so there was that. And um, so there was that corporate influence and uh, willing partners in the government who then had these, uh, the classic, you know, maybe uh, films like Lethal Madness that I oh, saw yeah. in high school in 1966. But they 
specifically, they had language. They had incredibly racist language that we doubled down on in, in subsequent elections. So the language was something like white women, girls who use cannabis will, will then get hooked up with dark men and their lives wow. will be over. Awful. I mean, those, and they would have pictures, you know, graphic pictures, like the graphic novel pictures and, and um, and it was horrible. So it was demonizing Mexican immigrants coming in and, and people of color and saying that our white women will be impure if, they're, if they smoke candles, they will make poor decisions and they'll hook up with uh, dark colored men. Um, yeah. that, that was part of Nixon's strategy, too. Uh, Eric Nixon and his um, uh, memoirs talked about how they. They, they got into power in the 70s and they were trying to figure out what to do about their law and order platform. And they said, well, the more hanging fruit would be to go after uh, drugs because only the hippies, the Jews, and the blacks were into that. <clears throat> Direct quote. Uh. So they, they commissioned, uh, a, a, they created a commission called the Schaefer Commission. It was led by a very conservative governor at the time. And they did all this research over a year's period of time and came back with a public health report and recommendations and run along. They said, uh, doesn't seem to be any public health reason to create laws around cannabis, around marijuana, whatever as they called it, because um, that name stuck from the 30s. Yeah. Um, and, and they said, and we can use this in our, you know, uh, our campaign to look like we're doing something. Because only the hippies, the Jews, psychiatrists, and the blacks are into it. So we can marginalize them. And the thing to do is to talk about that without talking about it. So we talk about it by, by talking about drugs. So it's all there. It's all there in the initial tapes and in uh, Eric Nance's um, memoirs. So that's the kind of uh, political... Uh, uh, Machinations that, that led to the to the creation of the Schedule One, driving uh, for DEA, and I was just looking at the, before our phone call. I was looking at the Schedule Drug, Schedule One being no medical value, and LSD and cannabis is still there. You know what Schedule Four is? Gallium <laughs> and anabis. <laughs> well, and isn't <laughs> cocaine like Schedule Three or something too? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Schedule Three, right? Exactly. Uh, well, that's all. That's all uh, tainted science, all politically um, motivated to uh, demonize poor people, to demonize people uh, as the others, so that uh, they can maintain a hold on power. As we're seeing in the uh, current, uh, the last couple of years, with this uh, focus again on rather than public health treatment of. Uh, of alcohol and drug use to law enforcement and incarceration. So we have what quarter of the population of the world and the highest number of incarcerated people because of the war on drugs who spend billions of dollars. Yeah, five percent uh, of the population and twenty five percent of the prison population somewhere around yeah, those numbers. Yeah, yeah. yeah something like that. Yeah, I got those numbers wrong. Crisscross. So um, that's that's so that's so harmful, so hurtful. And then all those people who get 
picked up for um, possession, um, then that follows them throughout their lives. They can't get scholarships. They have trouble getting jobs, loans, everything like that. It's it's just such a, a, a harmful and obscene uh, approach to health to the 9% of people that have the potential for addiction. And that's a potential. Exactly. Right? Not for sure, right? And, and a lot, so you can be on, and by the way, uh, going back to the research on antidepressants, they cause an, a, an addiction uh, system in the body that makes withdrawal worse than, worse than some of the narcotics. Uh, alcohol at all. It's just horrific. And on the front end, a lot of the antidepressants, a small percentage, but still, it would be nice to know this, and a lot of alternatives, is that because <clears throat> some people have, or have a um, physiology that if they just take an antidepressant for two weeks, it wipes out their libido for the rest of their lives, it changes their brain structure. That's just crazy. Um, Lifelong so effects like for two of, weeks of medication. Right. right. And then uh, people who try to get off of it have these horrific uh, uh, side effect adverse reactions and and they have to withdraw the period of six months to a year to get off of it, having their doses and all the physicians don't know how to do that. So there's a, there's a group, an international group of uh, physicians that are looking at, at mental health drug and the antidepressants specifically, but all medications because the feedback loop from physicians who are observing or patients that are reporting that are doctors, side effects or adverse reactions, um, doesn't get up to or is ignored by the pharmaceutical companies until many, many uh, people are suffering or have died and uh, as we found out, that the pharmaceutical companies just built into their budget billions of dollars for payments of lawsuits for death. And, and They're making trillions. Why not just give away a couple yeah. of billion? Right, exactly. <sighs> the wrong place. It should be going into public health. <laughs> yeah. So uh, working in the, in the mental health drug and alcohol system and seeing how they were demonizing cannabis and also using these, these anti, antiquated and totally um, disproven um, chemical dependency in their health interventions for addictions, which ended up in uh, incarceration and life-changing um, trajectories of people. Uh, it just, it, it just is, is so, it uh, cries out for you know, social justice reform, drug reform, so that's part of the what we want to do with the um, cannabis patients as well. To that end, and another project I've been working on um, that came out of uh, colleges classes I was teaching, and became involved in a nonprofit that's going out to community talking about prevention and wellness strategies, how you can change your lifestyle. Is doing talks in the libraries and different places separate from the cannabis work. But I started including cannabis in that because people need to have that information. Yeah. And here's here's an option that's available, you know, for this and that, anti-inflammatory, change your lifestyle, but that's cognitive decline, judicious use, and also be 
okay as a replacement for alcohol or for date night or for relaxation or whatever. Um, so um, out of that, I started doing some uh, work uh, employee wellness, employee wellness program here in town uh, for the last couple of years. And I mentioned that in a, in a talk I gave on preventing cognitive decline and protecting the memory that you age. And I just, I just said, you know, you people that are working full time may not be able to use this, but you have family members that may be, this could be useful. So here's the information on CBD and THC and pain and information and preventing cognitive decline. And some of your relatives or friends might be able to use this. So that resulted in me being invited into the retirement board for the local fire and police department to give a talk on it. Wow. That's how it happened. So that's, you know, it's just, we're just grassroots loading the information up there and being, being available for people that um, want to hear more about it. Well, we will definitely be including a link to the Cannabis Patients Pacific Northwest in the show notes. And I know that we have to get you going here pretty quick, but I wanted to... Uh, see if you had any uh, last shout-outs or um, words you wanted to leave anybody with. Uh, yeah. Try going to a medical cannabis dispensary. They're, they're, they're smaller. Uh, they're, they have people that are trained to talk about uh, different symptom profiles. And um, the way they say, they can't give you recommendations, but what they can do is say, people who've come in and this is by law that they they can only say this. People come in with what you're expressing help for, seeking help for, have tried these kind of combinations of products. Why don't you try this? The other thing I wanted to mention about that is that um, because of all of the pejorative statements and propaganda about cannabis, people are still reluctant to go and park their car outside of the cannabis dispensary feeling as if they're going they're going into an adult bookstore and people are gonna watch them and feel that I mean these I mean people actually say that in my classes, you know, well, you know, I went I went in and I pulled up and then I went away and where should I go and where's a better one? And I went into this big one, you know, and there's people all over the place and all those products and I didn't have really a chance to talk to people. So um, that's one of the things that we have on our website is um, medical dispensaries in Portland and in uh, some areas, other areas of Oregon and in Southwest Washington where you can go into a medical cannabis dispensary to get help. And then also you can email us uh, with any questions and we have patient education material on the site as well. Well, thank you so much for, (laughs) Oh yes, please don't forget the t-shirts. But thank yeah, you so much for uh, joining us today. I, I really appreciate you, and thank you for continuing education and helping get the word out there for everybody. It's it's a it's a wonderful gift to have in retirement to be able to do this work. It gives me a sense of purpose, which they say is good for your brain, and um, it's uh, just it's just. Um, it's just really good fortune to be able to be in a place to help people like this and to have people like you get the word out too, John, because you, you showed up to class and you knew more about the topic and you've done a lot more research than 
And I had done to that point. So you put me in the right direction on a lot of things. Thank you for that. I'm always glad to be help. And uh, I'm looking forward to having you and Jeremy back here again soon. Yeah, yeah. New year. Hopefully it'll be a brand new year. Yes. Uh, let's go election day, right? Hopefully everybody's yeah, out right. there voting, election. making a change. Oh, yeah. Uh, let's move the country into a new direction. We build all our our healthcare system, our justice systems, and make it more people-friendly. Make it work for everybody instead of just right. the elites. Just the elite, just the billionaires, right? That, that, um, we need healthcare for everybody. Agreed. Um, access, equity, and increasing in, in access. So um, look forward to our next conversation and have a great day. You too. Thank you again. Commercials, ads, commercials, ads, interview. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I want to give a special thanks to all of our listeners. You are the reason I'm doing this. Please tell your friends about us, subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you're listening, and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast if you can. Every podcast says that because it really does help spread the word. You can also support us on Patreon or connect with us on the social media of your choice. We are at Awakened Exchanges on Facebook and Instagram and at Awaken Exchanges on Twitter. Thanks again and have a blessed day.